Let's turn in the scriptures to Hosea. This morning, I'm beginning a series of what I think is going to be about 12 weeks, a series of 12 messages through the 12 minor prophets. They're the 12 last books of the Old Testament. These are some of the books in the Bible of which people are least familiar. They're called minor prophets, not because they're insignificant or because they're, you know, less skillful prophets. If only they would have worked a little harder, they could have made it up to the majors. It's not because they are insignificant or unskilled. Instead, it is because their writings are smaller. They're shorter in length. That's why they're called minor, because compared to the major prophets, these books are shorter. In every one of the manuscripts that's been discovered, these 12 books have always been found together. A set. They're a single scroll. That's why they're often called the Book of the Twelve, because they're a single book that basically has 12 chapters, each of which is focused on one of these prophets who writes book of shorter length. Now, these books are not only unfamiliar because of their content, but also because of their names, right? If I start listing off the minor prophets, Hosea, Joel, Amos, Obadiah, Jonah, Micah, Nahum, Habakkuk, Zephaniah, Haggai, Zechariah, Malachi, most of you are like gesundheit. What did you just say? Like, whoa, several of those names are not names that I have ever encountered in, in any individual in my lifetime. You hear a name like Zephaniah. Maybe you've met someone named Zephaniah. I haven't yet. I don't know if you've met someone named Habakkuk or Habakkuk, depending on how you pronounce it. Have you thought of naming your children this? No. You read these names and you're like, wow, this is such unfamiliar territory. This, this, it's almost scary just from the titles of the books. And truly, these are ancient Hebrew names. And there are names in many cultures that people hear from other cultures and they say, I would never name my kids that. We're just going to have to get over the names, right? One of the reasons I'm burdened to preach these books is because I'm burdened to preach through the whole Bible. I was sharing these burdens. I share these burdens regularly with the elders. Of course, I receive input on burdens for preaching from anyone in the congregation or outside the congregation. I was sharing these burdens recently with Greg, and, uh, and, and I was like, I don't know if I should continue with this burden. I've had a, a burden for about a year or more to preach the minor prophets. Should I? He said, one of the things that's driving me to it is that I just want to preach the whole Bible to our congregation. And he kind of stopped me right there, and he said, That's an awesome reason for preaching the Minor Prophets. We need the whole Bible. So one of the things driving me is that we need to encounter God's Word, all of it, not just some parts of it. But I'm not just wanting to check off a box and say, been there, done that. Much more importantly, these books need to shape our view of God. And being unfamiliar with these books is not a good thing because there are aspects of God's character that are emphasized in these books that we desperately need. In fact, many of these books, Hosea included, 
present a view of God that many Christians today can't stomach. They present a God not only of patience and mercy and love, a God of great salvation, but they also present a God who is fierce in justice and fiery in his wrath. And many people read these things and they don't know what to do with them. Many people read them for the first time and say, I'm not sure I even like the God who's here. We need to read these books because we can have a wrong view of God. If you're relating to a God of your imagination, you're relating to God via an idol and an inaccurate depiction of him. We need to relate with the God who's there, the God who actually exists, the God who has revealed himself in the scriptures. And so being unfamiliar with the minor prophets is not really a good thing. The beginning point for working through the minor prophets is actually a little bit of a history lesson, all right? So I kind of work through a little bit of the funny names saying, we're going to have to get over it. But one of the things that we've got to do in order to rightly understand the minor prophets is to understand how they fit into Israel's history. So humor me here for a minute while I take us through a very brief, very basic tour of Israel's history. All right. The beginning point of Israel's history, if I'm just going to block it in with a couple rough dates, is around 1000 BC, King David and King Solomon, his son, reigned in Jerusalem. That gives us a, a good starting point. This was the, really the pinnacle of the kingdom. Solomon's reign stretched the farthest of any king. And it was actually in the time of Solomon's son, a generation later, technically 930 BC, but I'm just going to block it in around 900 BC, that the kingdom splits into northern and southern Israel. Northern Israel kept the name Israel, and southern Israel was often referred to by the largest tribal group or county, we might say, in the area, Judah. Northern Israel was called Israel. Its capital was in Samaria. Eventually, the Samaritans will come out of that region. Samaria is Israel's capital, and Judah's capital is Jerusalem. Northern Israel is unfaithful to the Lord, for a long time, almost 150 years. And in 722 BC, Assyria, the Assyrian Empire, conquers northern Israel, also known as Samaria, sometimes called Ephraim by one of the largest county groups or tribal groups in that area. So northern Israel is decimated by the Assyrians in 722. The same thing is going to happen about a hundred years later, to the southern kingdom for their unfaithfulness to the Lord. In 586 BC, it's no longer Assyria, but this time Babylon, the Babylonian Empire, under Nebuchadnezzar, King Nebuchadnezzar, is going to lay siege to Jerusalem and conquer the city. And he is going to burn the temple. He is going to kill many people. He's going to take many people off as slaves to Babylon. That happens in 586 BC. And to just round it out a little bit more, around 500, it actually begins around 516, and uh, even before that a little bit with Zerubbabel leading groups. But around 500 is when Jerusalem begins to be rebuilt. And the temple 
is rebuilt by Zerubbabel, and then Nehemiah is going to come generation later and rebuild the city walls around Jerusalem. That's the rebuilding. If you get these basically five dates in Israel's history, you're going to be able to understand most of the Old Testament and, and how things are working, whether we're leading into the kingdom or whether we're in the kingdom, what part of the kingdom we're in. And you're also going to be able to locate the minor prophets with this basic overview of Israel's history. The minor prophets, including Hosea, which fit in in the northern kingdom for about 40 years before 722 BC, the minor prophets were basically political commentators who kept saying to the political leaders and to all the people in the culture, you're wrong. Your view of God is wrong. Your view of government is wrong. It's going to land you in destruction. Look at your lifestyle. It's going to ruin you. They're basically political commentators in Israel who are trying to keep the nation from implosion, from destruction. And the overarching message of these 12 books is that Israel didn't listen. They instead didn't care about the warnings of judgment. They still wanted to live their own way, and they needed a king who would obey God and a king who could fix their wayward, selfish hearts. The Old Testament ends with this longing. We need someone to fix these broken people. Hosea, of course, is what we study today. He's the first of these minor prophets, and he's probably first because he's longest. He's one of the longest. He's also very comprehensive. His message is not only for the northern kingdom, but he's hinting that the southern kingdom in Judah is also going to fall if they don't turn. And uh, like I said, he, he preaches for 40 years. Think about that. His, uh, his, all of his adult life, he is preaching to God's people about their waywardness and challenging them to turn, even though they're not. The way in which Hosea preached was dramatic, unforgettable. The way in which Hosea communicated his message is startling. If you've never encountered Hosea before, put your seatbelt on. You might fall out of your seat. I have read this with believers. I've taught this to teens. I've taught it to adults. And a common reaction I get is, that's in the Bible? Yeah, it's in the Bible. If you've never read Hosea before, get prepared that you're about ready to scratch your head and say, I had no clue. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to read the first chapter in its entirety. I'm going to survey the rest of the book very quickly, pointing out statements here and there through the rest of the book, and we're going to get a, a grasp of God's word through Hosea. In chapter 1, we're told the word of the Lord that came to Hosea, son of Beeri, in the days of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah, and in the days of Jeroboam, son of Joash, king of Israel. When the Lord first spoke through Hosea, the Lord said to Hosea, Go take to yourself a wife of whoredom, and have children of whoredom, for the land commits great whoredom by forsaking the Lord. 
So he went and took Gomer, the daughter of Diblaim, and she conceived and bore him a son. Now, to put it in our language, the Lord calls Hosea to marry a woman who's going to cheat on him and give birth to illegitimate children. In order to picture the relationship between the Lord and the whole nation that's been cheating on him for centuries. And now we learn about these three illegitimate children that Hosea has. The Lord said to Hosea regarding this first son, Call his name Jezreel, for in just a little while I'm going to punish the house of Jehu for the blood of Jezreel. That's the king's house, basically. And I'll put an end to the kingdom of the house of Israel. And on that day I'm going to break the bow of Israel in the valley of Jezreel. Gomer, his wife, conceived again and bore a daughter. And the Lord said to him, Call her name No Mercy. God's telling Hosea to name his daughter No Mercy. Because I'm no more going to have mercy on the house of Israel to forgive them at all. This is a declaration of impending judgment. Israel has reached the point of no return. He says, But I will have mercy on the house of Judah. That is the two southern tribes there, Judah and Benjamin, with a capital in Jerusalem. And I will save them by the Lord their God. I will not save them by bow or by sword or by war or by horses or by horsemen. And if you're curious about how God actually saved them when he decimated northern Israel, you can read about it with uh, Sennacherib's military coming with the commander, the Rabshakeh, coming and announcing doom to Jerusalem. And God protects Jerusalem from that siege and from that decimation with angel warriors. Incredible. So the time at which the northern kingdom falls, the southern kingdom is rescued. Verse 8, when Gomer had weaned no mercy, she conceived and bore a son. Again, based on how Gomer is introduced, this is another illegitimate child. This is a child of adultery. And the Lord said, call his name, not my people. For you're not my people and I'm not your God. He's announcing he's divorcing Israel for unfaithfulness. But then he immediately assures the people that there will be a reconciliation, that he will keep his promises. He says, yet, verse 10, the number of the children of Israel shall be like the sand of the sea. This is going all the way back to the promises to Abraham. I'm not going to forsake my promises entirely. You won't be able to be measured or numbered. And in the place where it was said, you're not my people, it will be said to them, they're children of the living God. And the children of Judah and the children of Israel will be gathered together and they'll appoint for themselves one head and they'll go up from the land for great shall be the day of Jezreel. So after judgment there is going to be a regathering under one head. And people who are not my people will be called my people. The only way you can make sense of this is the Lord Jesus. Paul, in fact, says that Hosea is fulfilled in the Gentiles and Jews coming together in one body, being grafted into this one thing that God is doing, Romans 9, 10, and 11. He's quoting Hosea 1 in Romans 9, 26. 
So stepping back from chapter one, Hosea's agonizing marriage is a picture of God's relationship with this nation. And in chapter two, the Lord promises that there's going to be hope again after trouble. Look at verse 15. I'll make the valley of Achor, the valley of trouble, a door of hope. There will be hope after trouble. In verse 18, he says, I'm going to make a new covenant. He stresses it three times. I'm going to make a new covenant on that day. It's a covenant that's going to change the people's hearts and eventually affect all of creation. That is the new covenant put into effect by Jesus. We have experienced a foretaste of it. We await for its ultimate completion. And then to picture that future hope, go to chapter 3. This is incredible. It's where I'm going to end. Look at chapter 3. In order to picture that future hope, the Lord commands Hosea, chapter 3, verse 1, to go back and remarry Gomer, who's repeatedly cheated on him. He says, go again and love an adulteress. But verse 5, after judgment, the people are going to submit to David their king. This is a reference to Jesus, the ultimate David, or the ultimate king from David's line. And in chapters 1 through 3, then, you basically have an announcement that Israel has repeatedly broken their covenant with the Lord. You have a marriage covenant that is repeatedly broken. But it will eventually give way to a new covenant, a new marriage relationship. Are you shocked that something like this is in the Bible? You might be. It's actually all over the Bible. It's all through Exodus, Leviticus, Deuteronomy. It's in Isaiah, Jeremiah, Lamentations, especially in Ezekiel 16, 23. That is chapter 16 of Ezekiel, chapter 23 of Ezekiel. It's all throughout the words of Jesus. We read past it way too quickly when Jesus looks at the cities in which he grew up and he says, you're an adulterous generation. He says it repeatedly. This is all through scripture. In chapters 4 through 14 then, Hosea is going to preach God's judgment. He's first going to preach that God's judgment is coming. This is chapters 4 through 9. We're going to take an even quicker survey of these chapters. Look at Hosea 4.1. Hosea declares there's no faithfulness or steadfast love. He's going to say that this assessment applies to every level of society, whether priest or prophet or king or commoner. People are covenant breakers. They're faithless. The Lord says in the very next verse what their unfaithfulness is. They're swearing, lying, murdering, stealing, committing adultery. And then he goes on through these chapters and says... They're repeatedly making alliances with foreign nations, thinking that foreign nations will protect them when God has specifically said, don't do that. I want to prove to you that I am enough for you. They're directly disobeying God. And furthermore, these people are declared unfaithful for their idolatry. They're setting up extra gods in their fields like good luck charms. Worshiping Baals, thinking that it's going to lead to their prosperity, their material prosperity. They will be more successful because of their idolatry. It's awful. Look at chapter 6, verse 4. Flip over there, maybe just a page. 
where God asks, he pleads with these unfaithful, covenant-breaking people, what am I going to do with you? Chapter 6, verse 4, what am I going to do with you? Your love is like a morning cloud. It's like the dew that goes away early. Tell my kids on the way out to school, don't step in the grass because your shoes are going to get all wet. If it was 10 o'clock, you could walk in the grass as much as you want because by 10 o'clock, the dew is gone. God's using that as an illustration of what his people's commitment to him is like. I wonder if some of you can relate to that this morning. You're like, it's like I have no commitment. I have no resolve. I have no follow-through. Look how wishy-washy I am. It gets worse as the years go on. In verse 6, says, in verse six God says, I desire steadfast love. I'm not interested in your sacrifices. But verse 7, he says, Like Adam, they transgressed the covenant. They dealt faithlessly with me. He's saying, essentially, all humans follow their father in not submitting to God, but cheating on God, going away from God. We live for his blessings. We live for self-exaltation rather than living for God and exalting God. We're like Adam in that way, and that's why we're going to face judgment. Flip over to chapter 8, verse 7. Here's a phrase that's become epic in modern English. God says through Hosea, chapter 8, verse 7, they sow the wind and they shall reap the whirlwind. Chapters 4 through 9 are describing that God's judgment is coming and there's some awful depictions of the reasons for that judgment, awful depictions of their unfaithfulness. Chapters 10 through 13 Hosea announces that God's judgment is going to be severe, but not the final chapter. Here, God continues his accusations against Israel. Look at the first verse of chapter 10. The more she prospered, the more she forgot God. I think many of us in here should be very, very cautious of prosperity. If prosperity leads us to arrogance, Pray that God will make you poor if you'll depend on him. The more she prospered, the more she forgot God. And throughout these chapters, chapters 10 through 13, some of the depictions of the judgment that's going to fall on Israel is just horrible. What God's going to allow to happen to individuals through the Assyrian domination. What we learn when you read these awful consequences that are going to result is that cheating on God must be more horrible than the consequences. You got to remember that as you're reading through these chapters. But there's hope. Look at chapter 11 verse 1. God reminds the nation, when Israel was a child, I loved him, and out of Egypt I called my son. And he goes on to say, but my son became unfaithful, my people became unfaithful. And God promises verse 5 of chapter 11 that after the judgment of Assyria, of their domination, he is, verse 8, chapter 11, verse 8, going to be warm and tender in compassion to people. Verse 9, he says, I'm not going to utterly destroy you in burning anger, but my wrath is going to be assuaged and I'm going to dwell again with my people. Huh. These verses again, verse 9 in particular, is anticipating the new covenant era that began when Jesus 
the perfect son who, like Israel, replayed the scene and came out of Israel, Matthew notes in his gospel. He comes, I'm sorry, he comes out of Egypt, just like Israel did. He comes out of Egypt, and he's now the perfect obedient son, and he is going to exhaust God's wrath on the cross, and he's going to make a way for God to dwell with people again forever. In other words, the judgment is going to be awful, but it will not be final. Anyone who approaches God through Jesus, through submission to God's chosen king, will have judgment averted. The final chapter is one of repentance. Look at chapter 14, verses 1 through 3. Here's Hosea's climactic plea. Return, O Israel, to the Lord your God, for you've stumbled because of your iniquity. Take with you words and return to the Lord. That means say it out loud. Tell God how sorry you are. Tell him about your sins. Say it like this. Take away all iniquity. Accept what's good. We'll pay with bulls the vows of our lips. Assyria won't save us. We'll not ride on horses. We'll say no more our God to the work of our hands. And in you the orphan finds mercy. Those are different ways of repenting for all of their evils. They're saying, God, I'm turning from the way I oppress other people. God, I'm turning from my idolatry. God, I'm turning from my reliance on foreign nations and on my reliance of my own strength. I'm turning back to you. And the Lord says in verse 4, if you repent like that, I'll heal you. I'll love you freely. The way one translation puts it is, my love will know no bounds. My anger will be gone forever. The Lord promises, if you repent, if you turn from your waywardness, I will heal you. We're ready to state the main point, but just look at Hosea. An overview of Hosea. Because of Israel's unfaithfulness to the covenant, God's judgment is coming. It's going to be severe, but it's not going to be the final chapter. And the announcement of God's judgment should lead people to repentance should lead people to turn to the Lord and find forgiveness, find hope. I'd state the main point of the book like this. God severely judges our unfaithfulness, but he remains faithful. Through Jesus, who is judged in our place, we can be reconciled to God and given hearts of faithful devotion. Jesus is the ultimate hope of Hosea. Now, in the remainder of this message, I just want to step back from Hosea and consider how significant this message is for us, how practical it is for our lives. This is one of the things that I hope you'll see in every message of this series is that these books, with which we're often very unfamiliar, should really shape our lives. They're immensely significant. They're immensely practical. The overarching message of Hosea, again, is that God severely judges our unfaithfulness, but he himself remains faithful. And through Jesus' taking on of himself of our judgment, we can be reconciled to God and given hearts, new hearts, of faithful devotion. How significant is this message? Well, it's significant in at least three ways. First way is this. Jealous covenant-keeping love is at the heart of reality, and it's at the heart of history. I really want to step back real big here and just think about reality and history, world history. 
What do you think when you step outside and look up at the sky? You stand in creation. You are aware that there are billions of stars out there in the, in the darkness. What do you feel when you experience, it's fall time again. Here we go again. There's the rhythm, the constant cycling of the seasons. Or when you drive past graveyards and the coldness of death hits you again and you say one time, if the Lord doesn't come back, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be there. I'm going to be in one of those places. What happens when you look at history? You look at history and you read about the rise and fall of empires. And you say, politics continues to be run by pretty stupid people. And there's no hope in this world. And oppression just keeps continuing. And the policies that keep coming out keep oppressing people. Let's pick a new group this time. They're not in people's interest. What do you think when you look at creation? What do you think when you look at history? Does it seem to all just be random? Pointless, purposeless. When you look at the world, do not believe the lie that there's no meaning. And when you look at history, this is what Ecclesiastes is all about, do not believe the lie that there is no meaning. If you gaze into the, to the vastness of creation or feel the cycles of creation, don't believe that there's no meaning. Instead, you need to realize that at the center of creation is a God of love. At the center of history is a God of love. He made us to, to love, to shower his love on. He made us to be objects of his love, and he made us to respond to his love by loving him exclusively. I want to share a quote here from Pastor Ray Ortland. He uh, explains in his book, which is on a biblical theology of spiritual adultery, the gospel sounds the voice of our husband who has proven his love for us and who calls for our undivided love in return. The gospel reveals that as we look out into the universe, ultimate reality is not cold, dark, blank space. Ultimate reality is romance. There is a God above with love in his eyes, love for us, infinite joy to offer us. He set himself upon winning our hearts for himself alone. The gospel tells the story, and this is where you get into the history. History is the story of God's pursuing, faithful, wounded, angry, overruling, transforming, triumphant love. And it calls us to answer him with a love which cleanses our lives of all spiritual adultery. History, all of creation, reality, centers on a God of love. As Ortland puts it, ultimate reality is romance. At the heart of reality is a God who loves us and wants us to love him exclusively in return. Number two, jealous covenant-keeping love is at the heart of marriage. 
We live in a day where many people cannot define marriage. It's no wonder then that marriage is disrespected and there is astronomical rise in the last generation of no-fault divorce and cohabitation. There's a new book coming out by sociologist Dave Ayers. We had him here about a year ago from Grove City College. His book's about to be published. The title of the book is Sex and the Single Evangelical. And he reports that 43% of evangelicals agree with this statement. It's all right for a couple to live together without intending to get married. 43% of evangelicals agree with it's all right for a couple to live together without intending to get married. Many evangelicals plan to cohabit before marriage. They plan to test their relationship through living and sleeping together before covenanting together in marriage. And statistics repeatedly show, over decades they show, that that is the way to make getting married less likely and staying married less likely. It will not help. It's not a wise decision. Evangelicals are so confused on marriage today. According to the Bible, marriage is a covenant relationship in which one man and one woman publicly promise each other their exclusive, lifelong, and whole person love. All I have belongs to you. All I am, all I have belongs to you, we say in the vows. And thereby, through that covenant, they establish a new family in the community. By God's design, marriage is exclusive. It's exclusive. Another way of saying that, it's inherently jealous. It's an inescapable fact of human existence that romantic love is jealous. New York Times, every day, is publishing articles on what they call modern love, different ways of doing romance. A few years ago, they published a feature article in their weekend paper on open relationships. I'll let you look up, if you want, what open relationships are. And that long article reported that open relationships still have the trouble of, quote, managing jealousy. Humans can't escape the fact of existence that God has designed romance to be jealous. Sexual unity is inherently unitive to becoming one. It is designed to express unity and enhance unity. The two are becoming one. Sex is designed to be uniting. It's no wonder then that marriage is exclusive, that romance is exclusive, that we don't tolerate rivals. In fact, the jealousy within marriage is completely contrary to evolutionary theory. Romance and the jealousy of romance cannot be explained by evolution. Evolution would essentially predict that more propagation is better. 
If you spread your genes to more people, you're ensuring the survival of your existence. In other words, if evolution is true, as humans, we should value the legacy of Genghis Khan. Genghis Khan is noteworthy for being the man who in history has probably fathered the most children. It's estimated to be over a thousand. He's the 13th century Mongolian warlord who had multiple wives, multiple concubines in many different generations. And he had over a thousand kids. Would living in a world of Genghis Khan's be uh, inviting to you? I mean, he's just propagating the race, right? He's ensuring the survival of his genes. Why doesn't a world of Genghis Khan's sound inviting? Why doesn't that view of marriage and sexuality sound beautiful? Evolutionary theory can't explain that. Evolutionary theory says, yeah, that's what, that's what we're made for. No, it's not. The fact that romance is inescapably exclusive and that Genghis Khan is an outlier, completely abnormal in history, indicates that marriage is created by a God who intended us to say something about him in the way we relate with our spouse, that we are covenant keepers, that we are exclusive and jealous within that covenant. The reason that marriage is jealous, and when I say jealous, I don't mean selfishly jealous. I don't mean immaturely jealous. I mean you're concerned about faithfulness to promises. That's mature, godly jealousy. The reason marriage is jealous is because God's jealous. And he designed marriage, he designed humans to reflect that in this relationship. God tolerates no rivals. That's why he's designed marriage relationships to allow no rivals. So if you're single, God calls you to realize just how marital love and romance reflect his jealousy. And he calls you to respect it, honor it. Don't toy with intimacy outside of covenant for God's sake because of how God's designed it. And if you're married, God calls you to reflect his jealous, covenant-keeping love within your marriage, within your commitment to your spouse because it matters to God. It honors God. It honors the way God created marriage. We honor God by honoring marriage, whether we're married or single. The final point is this. Jealous, covenant-keeping love should be at the heart of your life. It's at the heart of Hosea. How we live. Who we trust on a day-to-day basis. Whose authority really matters to us in life. That's what's at the heart of Hosea. Whether we who are made to love God, trust God, submit to God, choose to instead love anyone or anything else, either instead of God or more than God, he will tolerate no rivals. 
Are you living with God rivals in your life? The problem is that we are prone to make idols, God rivals, with just about everything in life, right? Acceptance by friends, performance in school, performance in sports, food, romance, obsession with career, money, vacations. All of these become things that we live for and love and that drive us, that drive our priorities rather than God. So, if in these matters you're willing to either ignore God or disobey God and the obligations he's given you, you're guilty in the exact same way that people in Hosea's day were guilty. You're living as a cheater on God. You're loving all the things that God has has designed your life to include while ignoring God. It's serious. I wonder if your hope for the world is more focused on next year's election than on planting gospel churches. That would indicate a God rival. Maybe you're going into debt with comfort spending. That would indicate a God rival. Maybe you're working so hard you can't focus time, quality time, quantity time on the kids that God has called you to nurture in his admonition. Maybe you're unwilling to get baptized because you fear family and friends. Such choices indicate that you are allowing rivals to God in your life. People, money, things, politics, work, There are things that you say, I need these things to comfort me, to console me, to make me happy. And I am willing to ignore God or his priorities for my life in order to get them. If that's you, I call you like Hosea called the people. Beware. Judgment is coming. You are made for God. You're made to love God exclusively. Exclusive, jealous love from God and for God, should be at the center of your life. And if it's not, judgment is coming from the God who tolerates no rivals. It's serious. You should repent before it falls. And I say this in two ways. If you have never submitted to Jesus' authority, repenting of being your own Lord, I urge you to do that decisively now. Become a follower of Jesus and be reconciled to God through what Jesus did for you the cross and walking out of the tomb alive he can deal with your sin he can forgive your sin and he can he can address every one of sin's consequences including the worst which is death follow Jesus some of you are followers of Jesus but you're like me and maybe for the 10,000th time this week you're praying God I've let things get in the way again God, I keep ignoring your authority and and I keep worrying rather than trusting you and, and I keep doing things my way and I keep lashing out with my tongue. Forgive me, God. I keep thinking that doing things my way is, is the right way and God, help me not to persist long in that way. Help me instead to keep short accounts, to, to repent of my sin to look to you for forgiveness. God, keep working on my heart to to strengthen my devotion, my exclusive devotion to you. 
Maybe you need to right now for the 10,000th time return to the Lord and use words to say, God, I'm turning away from this back to you. Today's message does not end with warning, but instead with wonder. It's the way you should feel when you get to the end of Hosea. It's because of the weight of Hosea 3.1, when God says, go again and love a woman who's an adulteress. What's amazing is not that God judges cheating. What's amazing is that God is willing to be reconciled again with those who've repeatedly cheated on him. And that includes me. Hosea certainly emphasizes that God judges cheating. But when those who cheat repent, amazingly, God renews his love, his covenant love. His his compassions grow warm and tender again, not cold and stiff. Incredible. There is no one like God. There is no one whose love is so faithful, so willing to forgive, so willing to to reconcile and be reconciled. No one like God. And the only one who can experience the wonder of this love is someone who knows what it is to cheat. And you've cheated on God, especially if you've been someone who's been cheated on. You know how amazing it is to be restored in relationship after unfaithfulness. It's incredible love. Let's pray. Oh God, I pray that you would shape us with your word this morning. I pray that we would delight in your faithfulness but not take advantage of it. I pray again that we would fear your jealousy, but that we would also treasure your jealousy. Because you are exclusively committed to us through Jesus. Strengthen us with your word. Shape our lives with your word today. May we be doers of the word and not hearers only. Amen.